And we want to pick up where we left off in Acts chapter 19. Hopefully I'll zoom out and give us maybe a little bit of, of preparation before we begin to read this together. But what we found so far in the book of Acts is we zoom out the story of the Bible so that God brings all things into being and His people naturally rebel against Him. And instead of giving up on those people and destroying those people, chance after chance is given to those people. More mercy is given to those people. And, and God sends a messenger to say, hey, stop doing that. You might not want to do that. It's going to hurt. Don't, you know, don't touch that. That's not a good idea. And they continue to do that. And instead of giving up on them and destroying them, God continues to send the messengers to remind them of God's mercy and give them chance after chance. Until finally, so that no one would ever wonder what God is like again. So that one, no one would ever wonder if God is up there or if He's with us. God came to be with these people in Jesus Christ. And we see all that we need to know about God when we see this mercy and this giving and this powerful work of Jesus Christ. This thing that Jesus has done for us and who He is for us, we call the good news, the gospel. And it's outlined in the first four different first four different chapters or books in the New Testament called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's a big deal for us. Everything we believe hinges upon this good news of Jesus. And everything we think about or want to do as a group of people or even as families and individuals, we measure based on this good news. Our value, our identity is now in Christ because there's no one who has done anything so bad as to outweigh the good thing that God has done for us in Jesus. But those of us who, who maybe who maybe lean on the side of self-righteousness and self-reliance, there is also nothing so good that we think we might have done as great as what God has done for us in Jesus. And that's incredibly good news. And the transition of Jesus being on the planet and then the church doing the work of Jesus falls to us in the book of Acts. And we find some normative and informative things here. So we find some stories that we would call normative, saying that this is what we do. Jesus is no longer in the flesh with us. The apostles are no longer with us. But yet the things they did, the traditions they began, we consider to be normative. And so they're things we come across in Acts that we imitate. We see them and we go, let's do that. There's no reason why we shouldn't imitate that and do that, especially since we're like a baby church coming to life. We, we want to have our DNA really deeply set into these normative things that that Jesus began and passed on to his disciples. But then there's some things that are informative, and they're simply descriptive, right? Some of the things are prescriptive, you better do them, and some of them are informative or descriptive. And you don't necessarily have the power to do that. So you'll see amazing works of the Spirit here that aren't necessarily visible in our own world. For example, if there's one of you who has the power that every time you come up on a sick person, you pray for them and they get healed, well then that's awesome. You've got a power that God has given you that is amazing. But since I haven't seen most of you on Kello for that particular reason, I'm going to assume that you don't have that gift. And if you do, I shared with this for the last couple of weeks, you and me, let's go hang out at Sanford in Avira uh, this next week and let's shut that place down, right? Let's just start healing people. But those are the kinds of stories of healing that we find here in the book of Acts that we may not necessarily see exactly in our day. Do we believe that God miraculously heals and does things that we cannot explain? Absolutely. And we're left wondering, well, what, how, did, how did that happen? That must have been God who changed that person or changed that circumstance. But in the sense that we see some of these things here, they aren't necessarily normative. They're not prescriptive. Now you can try, go and, you know, in the name of Jesus, be healed. Go do that. But I think you'll find that you probably don't have the consistency that the first followers of Jesus, the disciples, the apostles, had. 
And so those things are descriptive. And as such, we see this transition between Jesus being on the earth, carrying on His work are the apostles, and carrying on that same work is the church. The church, capital C, the church, the followers of Jesus Christ. And so if you're in this room and you're like, I don't know about this whole church thing, I don't know about these Jesus people, you have a good reason to think that. They're strange. They're, we, these people calling ourselves followers of Jesus, are trying to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, trying to carry on this message of God's redemption that Jesus began, that Jesus accomplished and lived out for us. And so there's some things that are prescriptive that you and I do because that's what Jesus did. In Luke 24, this is what Jesus declared to his people as a prescription. He says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That is, that God is doing something in Jesus that's not an accident, it's according to plan. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. We pray that God would open our eyes in that same way. And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer on the third day and then rise from the day. Crazy, I know. And that repentance and then forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. So stay in the city until you are clothed with power that is my presence as my Spirit, the Holy Spirit on high. So this is the message. In Acts 1.8, we see that the people who follow Jesus are compelled by this vision that He has done something for us that has saved us and changed us, transformed the way we think and the way we live in such a way that we can't even explain And Jesus says before He ascends miraculously, you're going to be My witnesses. You won't have all the answers to all the questions, which is what the first followers of Jesus wanted. Jesus, tell us the times. Answer all the questions about the future. And Jesus says, that's not for you to know. None of your business. But instead, it is for you to be witnesses about what I have done. And those things are normative. You and I are witnesses. So again, if you're maybe not a follower of Jesus, you wouldn't say you love Jesus and He is your identity. Well then, Here's something you can judge us on. People like me who call ourselves followers of Jesus, we are intentionally trying to have a compelling witness for what Jesus has done. That my life now looks very different than it used to before Jesus took it over. Those things are normative. But in the time of transition, there's a method that's also normative as well. We see this in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves, the first groups of people calling themselves followers of Jesus, they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. So not only is there a normative command and mission that you and I as followers of Jesus have, but there's also a compelling method. And we try to be consistent on this. First and foremost, the apostles' teaching. The teaching about who Jesus is and what He's done. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is key for us. Everything that we think or do or pray about comes to us based on what we know to be true about Jesus and this gospel, this good news, this message of what God has done. But secondly, it says that there's fellowship. That means that we genuinely do our best by God's mercy and grace, love and care for one another. 
It says that there's breaking of bread, and that has kind of a multiple you know, meanings there, the layers of first, that, that we celebrate this thing called communion, the Lord's Supper, where we take the, a bread and we, and we remember in a powerful way how Jesus took the bread and ultimately became the bread that was broken to sustain us. And then we drink grape juice to remind us of the time when Jesus said, this juice is like a symbol of my blood. It is my blood. Now do this. Remember me when you take part in this. But it also has another layer. This just means we like to eat good food together. Right? This is a beautiful, there's a miraculous and amazing thing happens when you sit across the table from people and enjoy good food. And if you find the culture that doesn't like music or like food, right, you found the most impoverished, desperate place on earth. But this also has meaning for us as followers of Jesus, that we eat together, not just because we're hungry, but because there's something that happens when God is present with us in that. But then lastly, it's prayer. And so all four of these things are key components that we desire to have as Connection Church. And they come connected together. You can't have one without the other, right? If you're just a group of people who's devoted only to the apostles' teaching, that's going to be a cold and lonely place. There's going to be a lot of smart guys there, but not necessarily a lot of love, right? Maybe not a lot of food, not a lot of laughter. But then again, if you're only devoted to fellowship, then there's no truth that binds you, that edifies you and shapes you. Well then, as we like to say it, community without the gospel and without the mission is simply codependency. Community without Christ at the center is codependency. We'll only wallow in our own sorrows and we'll only kind of root around in our own mess, our own muck. And it is only by the gospel that we're drawn out of it. So these are the normative things. But then we get to Acts chapter 19 and there's some things that aren't necessarily normative. Instead, they're a picture of the transition between that which is normative and what ought to go on for us later and what happens before and that is this time where God is doing some amazing things. So let's read in verse 8 of Acts chapter 19. And he entered the synagogue, that is Paul, and for three months he spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them. And the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, say that ten times fast, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit rec- excuse me, answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And this is where the Bible sometimes just is fun. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. 
And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. We hope that we do not just simply read God's word, but we also pray that God's word in some mighty way reads us. I think what we find here, even though there's some extraordinary circumstances, there's six components of this story, I would say. I'll I'll point out six particular things going on in this story, and I want to walk through them, and hopefully, I think you might see that these six particular things have some lessons that might apply to the way that we think and live even today. The story begins with the description of the power of the Apostle Paul. This is common for key characters throughout the Scriptures. The second thing we see is you see some fake people faking it anyway in order to gain. Then you see, thirdly, the fake people exposed and punished. The fourth thing you see is that as a result, people extolled or made much of or held in high honor or high esteem the Lord Jesus. Fifthly, I think you see that the believers, people who are already following Jesus, begin to divulge their own secret practices. And finally, The thing that begins at the word of the Lord and ends, sixthly, is the word of the Lord increases. The power of the word that God speaks simply increases. So let's start with this. Knowing that some of these things aren't necessarily normative, again, this is strange, but we'll kind of dig through it, and some of this stuff I think might actually point to what God continues to do for us even today. Those lessons that these people learned in this story might actually apply to us. So beginning with the first thing. You see the power of the Apostle Paul. You see this at the very beginning from about verse 8 to 10. He enters the synagogue as was his custom. As we've seen, he starts with the people he knows and compels them to understand who Jesus is. That he is a king that is coming and the kingdom of God is announced in Jesus. And this king Jesus doesn't come as a tyrant or one who wants to destroy, rape, and pillage. But this king comes as a victor who gives mercy and says, I am now king. I love you. You are mine. And you're not just my subjects, but you are now heirs with me in God. You are now my brothers and sisters. This is not a king who sends people to die for his kingdom. This is a king who leads the way by laying down his own life so that people will be drawn into his kingdom. But some, it says, were stubborn and they didn't enjoy this. And so after three months of reasoning with these people, Paul takes up shop and goes somewhere else. It says he starts teaching daily at the hall of Tyrannus. This hall would have been like the school of philosophers. So this would have been uh, the similar thing. uh, I mean, it it would have been like a college or, or a way of a place where someone taught during particular hours of the day and his name was Tyrannus. Now, I would argue you can take this particular phrase where it says, and he started reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. You could roughly interject the phrase, the multi-purpose room of Rosa Parks Elementary. Right? A school. It's a school. It's not, it's, it's not a church. It's not a synagogue. And yet this first little band of Christians took this school and began to use it for another purpose. Roughly, I would say, somewhat synonymous to what we're doing here. Just interject here, if you ever thought that your teacher was a tyrant, this is really funny, because these people actually had a, a teacher whose name was Tyrant, Tyrannus. 
This continued for, no offense to actual teachers in the room, I love you. This continued for two years. So he stays in a place for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits were coming out of them. Now Luke always wants us to remember the works of Jesus always wants us to be thinking. And so Luke even tells us stories about how Jesus was walking through a crowd and a woman comes up and she thought to herself, I see the power of Jesus. If I could just touch the hem of His garment, then I would be healed of, at this particular time for this woman, was a very secret malady. And she came up to this man, Jesus, and didn't even, didn't even get His attention. He just said, she just thought to herself, if I can just touch Him, then the power of Jesus surely will be enough to heal me. And when she touches the hem of his garment, it heals this woman. And Jesus, instead of leaving it as a secret, says, who touched me? As if he didn't know. And drew attention to this woman who was now healed and set free from what once used to have power over her. Immediately after, he heals a person, brings a girl from the dead, and then he tells them, hey, don't tell anyone. And Luke, when he tells us this story in the book of Acts, wants us to recall the ways in which the work of the apostles and then the work of the church is synonymous and vicariously Jesus working through them. And so in the same way that Paul encountered Jesus, so also in this time of transition to where this doesn't happen anymore. I mean, I don't, again, I don't know if people touch your clothes and get healed. If so, that's awesome. Again, let's go have, let's have a rummage sale um, with all your clothes at, uh, at Sanford and Avira. Again, we'll shut it down, right? But, but unless you got that gift, this is a particular unique circumstance. But apparently people, just by the power of Paul knowing and preaching Jesus, they set their sights on Jesus by touching these clothes aprons, handkerchiefs, things that he would dispose of, and they were finding themselves healed, and they found that evil spirits came out of them. Now notice that ultimately the gospel is the thing that Paul was proclaiming. And I want to point this out just on a regular basis. Anyone who brags about having these powers for themselves, for their own glory, beware. If what they're doing is distracting from the good news of God who has done something for us in Jesus, just beware. This is something throughout the book of Acts. Anytime we see works of the Spirit, we also see, as you saw in this passage, people coming to believe in the name of Jesus, to be saved and set free and made new. Anytime someone says, hey, the Holy Spirit gave me this, I want to give it to you, and it doesn't ultimately glorify Christ or bring attention or make famous the name of Jesus, just beware. And I say that to you even about me. If I come to you and I say, hey, you know what, I feel like the Holy Spirit wants me to tell you and then fill in the blank with something. If that thing doesn't ultimately glorify Christ and make much of what God has done for us in Jesus, beware, I'm a liar. Because the works of the Spirit always come in conjunction with the declaration of the good news. Always. Either before or after. So much so that the normative thing that takes place later we find in Corinth, Paul tells us that there's no one who can say that Jesus is accursed in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, if the Spirit is what's leading them. But also, there's no one who can say that Jesus is Lord unless it's the Spirit who's doing it. So here's what I know. The fact that I'm talking about Jesus and the fact that you're not throwing chairs at me and you're angry about it is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work. 
I don't have the power. I'm not clever enough to compel you to believe in Jesus. But God in His Spirit can open your eyes to a miraculous and amazing thing in Jesus. And so when the Spirit works, He always testifies to what Jesus has done for us. I throw that out there and you find yourself thinking, that's repetitive. Well, that's, that's what we see over and over and over again in the book of Acts. The thing that is normative is that the Spirit always works to compel people to Jesus. The Spirit of God would never point away from Himself. Right? Remember, Abe Lincoln was quoting the Bible when he says that uh, two ha- a house divided against itself cannot stand. Because when Jesus was accused of casting out demons by the power of the chief demon, Satan, Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how that works. God doesn't work against himself, and even Satan wouldn't work against himself. And so Jesus is the thing that's exalted. God would never testify to a person by his Spirit away from Jesus. So beware, if you have friends who are like, the Holy Spirit told me, and then they say something that doesn't glorify Jesus, well then, oh, that's great. Encourage them, but just be like, hey, that's, that may not be actually the Spirit. That may be something else leading you. Because the works of the Spirit always are in conjunction with making much of Jesus. Every single time. And the powerful declaration of the good news is accompanied by these miraculous transformative acts. And this, I would say, is even applicable for us today. When we hear this thing that Jesus has done and we think, oh, that's crazy. What, Jesus was dead and now He's alive? When God opens our eyes to the powerful truth in those words by the power of His Spirit, something miraculous takes place. People like me, (laughs) I'll use myself even as the example, people like me who once delighted in all sorts of trouble start being, I don't know, a loving husband? A loving and selfless friend? No, not perfectly, absolutely not. There's still lots of me left, but miracles start taking place and where you and I begin to see that people are transformed. Not for our own glory, but for God's glory. But what accompanied these amazing acts were some other people who tried to imitate them. So secondly, you see some charlatans, some fakes, some people who who saw what was happening by the power of the name of Jesus and they wanted to invoke the name of Jesus for their own benefit. And these are itinerant Jewish exorcists that's a great job title just in case you're looking for one itinerant and they were traveling they were transient in a sense they were jewish so they were spiritual they they believed in one god who created all things but not necessarily that jesus was the manifestation fully of that and then there were exorcists so they had many incantations or different customs that they used to cast out demons we don't know how effective they were we just know that they were apparently good enough at fooling people in their spirituality that people believe that's what they were and luke has no problem telling us that that's who they were they traveled around and they were jewish and they were exorcists they were apparently fairly prominent they were a part of this line of of Sceva a a man we don't know very much about he may not have been a a very important high priest or or maybe that's meant to show us that these particular sons had run away from the teaching of their fathers and they were off doing their own thing but the implication is that the name of Jesus was effective to deliver and to heal but only when used by those who genuinely called upon Jesus as Lord People who proclaimed that Jesus was Lord and were changed by that apparently had the power to declare truth in the powerful name of Jesus such that lives were changed. Now these pretenders did not have the appropriate moral or spiritual integrity with which to engage these powers of evil. Certainly, 
not by the name of Jesus. And this scenario again, like in the book of Acts, often does, it pits miracles, the power of God to reveal Himself, against magic. The incantation and tricks of people to control God. Make sure we understand the difference. The Gospel is the miracle of God revealed to us that God has done something for us in Jesus, revealed to us this thing that we could never do for ourselves. And in our powerlessness... Instead of being smitten and destroyed by God, He saves us through Jesus. And we come to the end of our rope and realize we have no control over the world or anything. And there's good news that God who is in control loves us anyway. The opposite would be that you and I believe that we have power over the world. And that's the picture of superstition, magic. I gave an illustration, a silly one from my sport playing days back in the day. Right? If you rub this rabbit's foot, something's going to happen. As if, like, if you rub the rabbit's foot, there's a power that now owes you something. And magic, incantations, spells, are basically saying, I can put the powers that be in my debt. If I say these words or do these things, now God owes me something. There's a difference. One points to the good news of what God has done for us, and one of them points to ourselves trying to save ourselves. And the transition to the fruit of this is the story of the rest of the New Testament. But there's a contrast between people who do not have this power but only a desire to perform magic. There's a difference between people who want to exalt God and people who ultimately want to have power, which is particularly tempting for you and I in our own culture. In fact, one of the greatest idols that we worship is power and control. We'll do anything to have it and we'll freak out if we don't. But people who love Jesus don't have a desire to have power over God. Instead, they want to see the power of God change others. And these people are fake. Thirdly, you see what happens? These fake people are exposed and punished. The Spirit speaks out to these people, and by His testimony, amazing things happen. The Spirit says, look, Jesus I know. I know Jesus and His power. We see this also as carries on from Luke's Gospel that Jesus regularly was recognized by demons and as he would command demons to obey him the demons would quickly say really interesting things like oh no don't 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 do don't hurt us have you come before the important time to torment us it's it's like they knew jesus had power they knew he was going to torment them they just thought he came a day early and so they said you know jesus don't do this and jesus regularly cast out demons that recognized him Jesus I know. He says, Paul I know. Paul, I even know Paul because Paul speaks of Jesus. Paul preaches on Jesus. And even at other places, we see these followers of Jesus who have this power, including Paul. But who are you? Which is a nice translation of what this demon was speaking to these seven men. The subtext is, what power do you have over evil spirits? By what right are you telling us what to do? Meaning that if you belong to Jesus... And you preach His strong name, there's power. And to look to Jesus means you could be changed. But these seven people go, you don't have that power. And you see these seven people apparently even didn't even claim that. They said, look, by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, not who we believe. But then the fun stuff happens that sometimes the stories in the Scripture don't even need my help. Right there, there's a fight that takes place and the demon exposes them, the demon punishes them. And it says that these seven sons were attacked by the man who was possessed by a demon, by an evil spirit. 
They were leapt upon by this man possessed, and they were mastered and then overpowered until they fled out of the house naked and literally bleeding wounded. Now that's just a fun story, right? I mean, I've seen, I mean, I can't even imagine, like there's not even an example for this. I mean, I don't even, and I don't necessarily even want you to Google it if there, if there is one, but, uh, you know, like fight where people lose their clothes. Let's, let's stay away from that. But I've seen clothes, right? Any good hockey game has a good fight that tags along with it. And every once in a while, if the fight's really good, one of the cool tactics, apparently, is to grab a shirt, pull it over. Maybe, maybe not, you lose the shirt. You certainly wouldn't lose the fight so badly that you, you skated, not only ran away, but kind of went away naked. Hopefully you get thrown in the penalty box long before that happens. I've never seen such a fight. But all I could say is this. Imagine, imagine this kind of fight. There's one on seven. There's not even a good enough, you know, there's not even a Jackie Chan movie that, that does this, this well, right? Seven people lose, and they suppose that they're better off running outside in public naked and bleeding than to stay inside and keep getting, getting beat. Just think about that for a minute. They're still like, we can stay here and keep getting beat, or we can just run and just say, look, we lost the fight and our clothes. And they choose, all seven of them, seven of them, let's leave here with our bleeding, wounded selves, naked and afraid. So this is this beautiful thing that goes on here. That these pretenders only wanted to use the name of Jesus for their own gain. They didn't at all want to believe in Jesus or know Jesus, but they just simply wanted to benefit from Him. They didn't want to see that Jesus was God, but instead they wanted to be God so that Jesus would serve them. And there's an amazing lesson, I think, for you and me in this. One of the lessons, or one of the things of our culture that we see um, in our own particular day is, is this, this method of syncretism. That simply means to take beliefs from different walks of life, different cultures, different parts of the world, and then kind of say, like, they're all together, they all mesh well. And so someone can come along and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian Buddhist, right? We have this new phrase in our, in our particular culture, I self-identify. It's a new thing. You can do whatever you want to. I self-identify, and then you can fill in a blank with whatever you want, and, and that's actually a cool thing. Well, here's, here's a little bit of a countercultural thought here that, that Luke tells us, that these people thought that they could be itinerant Jewish exorcists and then tack on Jesus to get the blessing of Jesus and the benefit from it. And they were sadly mistaken. They thought that they could synchronize what they already believed and had Jesus kind of stamp his approval. You see this? This is, this is common. This is, man, this is our temptation. This is one of the deepest temptations of our own heart and of our culture, is to take to God that which we already want, that which we already wish were true, and then ask God to make it true. And then bless it, and then just say, look, yeah, God's cool with this. God condones this. And we take our, I mean, our natural tendency is to have a broken conscience that runs away from God and his goodness. And yet we find really clever ways. Man, the power of self-deception is monumental. And we'll look at something that we know defames God and doesn't make much of his goodness and his justice and his grace. And we'll say, well, yeah, God approves of this. And I'm not even saying that this is something our culture is guilty of. Although I think there's excellent examples in our culture of ways in which people want to bend Jesus to their own will and make Jesus say, yeah, I'm with him, whatever he says goes. 
but I'm also saying that this is actually the desire of our own heart. This isn't just counter to the culture in which we live. This is counter to the culture in our own heart. I want to be in power. I want to be in control. Even now, there's there's a temptation in me for you. I want you to think highly of me. I want you to think I'm smart. I want you to walk away being compelled by an argument that I make. So this temptation isn't just in our culture, it's in our own hearts. And of this, we are called to repent and to confess that that is selfishness. That is simply just like a bunch of seven guys trying to tack Jesus onto our own sense of lordship, hoping that it might be true. But the truth is that the only thing that's going to change you is not me. It's God's mercy for you and Jesus. I have the power only to entertain you for a few minutes. Maybe you give you a pep talk. Maybe make you laugh for a second. And maybe make you feel good or bad about your life as you leave this school building. But the power to transform your life and to change your heart and to turn you toward himself is something that God reserves for himself. And any attempt of ours to simply tack Jesus onto what we're already doing is actually saying to God that we are God. We are in control. And in that moment... It's terrifying for me, even at this moment. We are at risk. If this story tells us anything, it says that we are at risk. Now, I'm not saying that if right now you have hypocrisy in your heart and that you're not fully devoted to loving and following Jesus, that a spirit-filled man, a demon-possessed man, is going to beat you naked this week, okay? I'm not saying that. It's highly doubtful that if you have some inconsistency in your, inconsistency in your own heart, there's like, there's like a demon-filled man and he's going to come beat you naked, right? I doubt that's going to happen. But it seems to be clear that that's like an, an example, if this is description, not of what to do, but of what not to do, is it not? Because after all, that'd be a really interesting ministry, right? What do you do? I beat people naked for the sake of them realizing that they need to follow Jesus, right? Good luck with that. But this, this isn't something that will happen for you. But the lesson seems to be true. This is an example of what not to do. And this is terrifying for me at this moment. Because the power is in the name of Jesus, not in us. And if we wield it unfaithfully, and if we begin to make ourselves more important than the message that we speak, then we're doing something that sets us in place of God. And I don't know how God will punish us for it. Again, I don't know that anyone's going to beat you. But we are at risk. And to set our sights away from that which is true in Jesus Christ is to put ourselves at risk. We cannot superficially tack on the name of Jesus to what we do and what we want and hope that's okay. Because friend, Jesus is Lord of the universe. Jesus is king over all things. He's king over you and king over me. And to pretend that we have power over him puts us in a position just as dangerous and less silly as these seven sons of Sceva. So what's the lesson? Again, I don't think anyone's going to jump you, but this ought to also apply to us as a church. We may experience great fellowship together. This is one of the most generous group of people I've ever hung out with. This group of people who call themselves Connection. I've never been around a group of people that are nicer. But if we're simply just a great community who sometimes occasionally tack on thoughts and words about Jesus, beware, we're headed in the wrong path. 
But instead, let us desire to be a people who find our sole purpose and identity in authentically pursuing Jesus and His will for your life and for mine. Why would we do this? See, three different things. Many extol the Lord and come to believe. Many believers who already believe Him begin to divulge their sinful practices. And then lastly, the Word of God increased. So they get beat. And this, in verse 17, becomes known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. So apparently, whatever this demon-possessed man declared about these men became famous in the whole region. And this demon-possessed man recognized who Jesus is, recognized who Paul was as Jesus' missionary, but he did not recognize people who were faking it. And it filled them with fear that the name of Jesus must be powerful, that the name of Jesus must be strong to save, and that to look upon Jesus really is to find our one hope. And it became known to all the residents of Ephesus. It says fear fell upon them, and then the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It's not a word we use, but was held in high honor, worshipped. And we assume that those are probably people who weren't following Jesus, who weren't believers. In fact, this is the planting of the church at Ephesus. Just a side note, anytime we skip later on in the New Testament, we see different books written to particular churches. And this is the book to the Ephesians was written to these people described in verse 17. Verse 18 described the people who were also a part of there who were, also, who were already believers. It said, many of those who were already believers, they came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And the value of them was great, 50,000 pieces of silver. And then the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The people who were not believing began to exalt Christ. They began to open their eyes to the possibility that this God really is good to us in Jesus. And many, many were compelled by the testimony of a demon. But secondly, believers, people who already knew that Jesus was good, they began to grow in that knowledge. And there was something about this story. Maybe the man was well known. A couple chapters before, if you remember, there was someone who was profiting from a person, a slave girl who was possessed by a demon, but there was something about this particular man, maybe he was well known, and the people were profiting from it, and they get angry later, and there's something about his story that compels these people to believe in the name of Jesus. Again, these spiritual experiences always come in conjunction with belief in Jesus. And the people recognize that to genuinely follow Jesus involve letting go of the things that they treasured in order to enjoy the fuller blessings that come from God and Jesus. Catch that. The people, they knew that Jesus was good, but when they saw what had happened, they began to realize that to really follow Jesus means to let go of some things that we treasure. So two things I see there. First for the people, man, if you're in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, here's what I'm going to call you to. There's this amazing thing that God has done for me and for everyone in this planet in Jesus Christ. And he's calling you and me to experience it. And if you haven't experienced it, maybe if you would say, like, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm not, I'm not in that yet. That's fine. I'm glad you're here. But I believe you're here for a reason. I believe it's because God is calling you to believe in this thing that Jesus has done. And so there's a lot of ways in which that plays out. And it's always different. For some, it's a spiritual, powerful experience. For some, it's like a light bulb going off. 
For some, it's a deeply emotional transformation. For some, it means letting go of some things that you hold dear. But whatever it is, one of the ways, in a minute here, when we take up our offering, you'll see on that card, it says, I want to know more about becoming a Christian. I want to know more about becoming baptized. I would love for you, it's a discreet way to say, I mean, I, I think this is where I'm going. Maybe it's for you tonight. Maybe when everyone goes to bed, everyone in the house is quiet. Maybe it's just the moment where you say, God, I see something here and I don't know it, but I'm going to put my trust in it. Whatever that may look like for you, this is what God is compelling us to do, to see what he's doing around us and believe. But for those of us who know how good he is, we're also called to let go of the things we hold to be valuable. Make no mistake about it. The value, I don't know if you caught that, could be high. It could be great. God could be giving you a gift in Jesus that isn't ultimately a sacrifice to obtain, but instead it's a great deal. After all, a lottery ticket seems expensive until you walk home with millions of dollars. It seems like a wasteful and, I would say, prodigal expenditure of a dollar or two until you walk home with the fortune. And so also, sometimes God is calling us to let go of the things, not necessarily because they are bad, but because they paint an imperfect and inaccurate picture of his goodness. Again, we're back to the magic. Did you catch that? They realized that their magical practices was an attempt to be God and to have control and have power. And they had to let go. I mean, this, would have, this is probably a big deal for them. And their time in Ephesus to say, I am no longer going to feel like I'm in control over circumstances through my practices. Does this hit anyone close to home now? I'm going to let go of my sense of control of the future and let God have it? If that doesn't scare you, I mean, you're, not, you're missing the story. But these people were willing to let go because they began to see that their future in God's hands was much brighter and much better than the future that they could build for themselves. And it could be, and I would ask you to entertain the possibility of this, it could be that the thing that you're holding on to is actually destroying you and robbing you of the joy that God wants for you. And he's not mean because he shows that to you. God is not mean when he opens your heart and makes you feel guilty or shameful. He's actually merciful. It's actually his mercy. It's his mercy to send someone to beat you naked if it means that it ultimately opens your eyes to who Jesus is and how good he is. It's his mercy to open your eyes that the things that you and I hold dear might actually be keeping us from the better thing that God has for us. Because lastly, the thing that increases, and it, isn't, it doesn't say that the church, it doesn't say that Paul, or it doesn't say that any person got famous. It says it's the word of the Lord that continued. It's the word of the Lord that prevailed. And because of some pretty amazing things that refocus their sights on Jesus as the center, an amazing thing took place. Oh, let us be a group of people who see Jesus rightly, that as a result, people would come and believe. Let us believe in Jesus so deeply that we're willing to let go of things in order to extol and make much of him. And then ultimately, so that people would hear the word, this good news, it would increase in our city close with the thought as we set our focus rightly as we kind of maybe take this example of some people who got it wrong let's say and then ultimately got it right or at least 
began to take steps closer to seeing Jesus for who it is. I was reminded this last week of some history. One of the largest air crashes that's taken place in the world took place in 1979. New Zealand Air Flight 901. In 1977, as they were mapping out the uncharted territories of Antarctica for the purpose of navigation of flight around and over uh, Antarctica and the South Pole, there was a scribal error where someone wrote what was written about particular coordinates and he typed them into these navigational systems and it was two degrees off. Two degrees off. Just two degrees. Not like, oh, that's the wrong way. Two degrees. And for two years, it went completely unnoticed until finally the computer corrected itself and people entered some information and altered the course by two degrees. And a flight of people, 257, didn't notice being off course until they almost got to where they were going. Instead of flying into and around a cove and flying over some beautiful scenery, after all, it was a scenery tour. This is why they don't even do this commercially anymore. They were almost 30 miles off course. Just two degrees. So small. But over the course of the flight, the difference was the difference between flying between here and 30 miles from here. And for them, it was the difference between descending calmly and seeing the beautiful scenery to descending and crashing into Mount Erebus, where instantly the plane and everyone inside were incinerated. It's just two degrees just two degrees that happened a couple years before anyone on that flight even knew it took place and they were off course just by a little bit but the consequences were monumental and it was a terrible tragedy brought on by a minor minor error a matter of a couple of degrees now while again i don't think that anyone's going to beat you and strip you naked and humiliate you if we miss this good news of Jesus, I think the lesson seems to be clear. Especially for us as a church that's just barely coming to life. As we look to our future, oh, that we would set our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would focus on Him more than anything else. That we would rely on Him and what He has done for us. That we would let go of the things that have no power to give us joy. And we would see the ultimate joy that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. That He has borne our sorrows and that He has given to us this gift of life. Let's pray. Jesus, You are good. Jesus, You are faithful. Jesus, You have done something for us we could not do for ourselves. God, would You, in Your infinite wisdom and mercy, begin to expose in us all the ways in which we actually want to be God uh, we want to be in control. Jesus, there's, there's some in this room even maybe wouldn't call themselves followers of, of you, and there's some that, and this is just an amazing thing to even begin to believe. And I thank you that they're here. I thank you for the possibility that they might be opening their eyes to this good news. Not for their misery, but there's greater joy. Would you show them how good you are today? Show them that you are a master, you are a king that values his people, that lays down his life for his kingdom.
that you are a loving Savior, that you draw us near. It is not your desire to crush us with rules and regulations, but instead to draw us into a family that we would be adopted and transformed. For those of us that know this good news, man, we've been changed by this good news. We confess and we repent of all the ways in which we've tried to have control in ways that, that points inaccurately and unfaithfully to who you are. You are king over all things and we are not. May this happen in us. God, may this, may this strange story actually start to happen around us. May we begin to see and know your goodness in such a way that people begin to believe and that those who believe begin to see you as you really are and that this word, this good news, this encouraging word would spread beyond the people that we even know or even have met today. In Jesus' name, amen.